When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of For Real is sponsored by our limited-time Book Riot merchandise, created just in time for our 10-year anniversary. Whether you're new to the Book Riot community or have been with us from the beginning, we've got new Book Riot swag so you can show off your love for all things bookish, available only for the month of October. We've got t-shirts, super soft and comfy hoodies, tote bags, and more, all with the Book Riot logo and in our signature colors. The yellow is very fall-friendly, we're just saying. Go to bookriot.com slash merch to pick up your 10-year anniversary items. That's bookriot.com slash merch. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight in books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording on Thursday, October 7th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I'm just, you know, scooting along. How are you, Kim? <laughs> I feel uh, I feel the same way. It's been a good week, but, you know, just trucking along. I, I cannot believe that it is October. Oh, yes. I don't know how that happened. And is that just the beginning? We're, like, a little advanced into October, and then soon it shall be November, and then so on. However... There, I would say there were a number of very fun television programs happening right now, which is really getting me through this time. Um, mm-hmm. Although one of them just ended, which is Bachelor in Paradise. And it was, <laughs> oh my gosh. I know I've talked about it on the show before, but like, honestly, this last season, it was so good. And then <laughs> we watched the <laughs> extremely long finale last night. I'm not going to give anything away, except that my wife cried multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> sorry michelle also okay this is i guess it's a slight spoiler but not actually i'm not gonna name names um i feel like normally with bachelor in paradise because you know it's like a bunch of couples get or people men and women can whatever I, get can i just before you continue i want i'm really curious if there's a venn diagram of people who listen to this podcast who also are worried about spoilers for bachelor in paradise like oh, is that a venn diagram or are those just two separate circles you just no never idea. know <laughs> So, okay, my only comment on this is that normally with it, you get all these people who are dumped on a beach, they have to hook up, it's musical chairs with relationships, etc. By the end, I feel like you get like maybe two couples who get engaged and then, or maybe one, it's like one to two. This season, and I'm convinced it's because of COVID and also the reason why everyone has been acting way off kilter this season, you had three couples get engaged and then two couples who had broken up during the course of the show are now back together and like serious about each other. So you have five couples. And I was like, oh, quarantine. Everyone just really lonely. And they're like, we really got to like get paired up because we're we don't know what's coming next. Yeah, I think that's what's going on. And it was very satisfying to watch because people were (laughs) much more seriously minded than they normally are. Wow. All right. It was great. That's good to know. 
It's good to know. So in other news, our holiday gift guide episode is coming up November 23rd. This is where uh, you can send in requests like I have someone in my life I need to get a book for and I these are other things they like and please help me find something because we are delighted to help. If you have any requests, any difficult to shop for people in your life, you can send an email to forreal at bookriot.com uh, by November 15th. But I would just do it now because you're going to forget. Just send that email with, uh, I don't know, for real gift guide uh, in the subject line. Let's just say that. And uh, send us your requests and we will try to get those answered. Yes, this is really fun because it's a little stressful because I, I worry about like recommending a bad gift and I feel like nervous about that. But also it's super fun because truly like the best thing that I like my favorite thing is to tell people what books to read. So I find it very delightful. Someone messaged me after our last episode about the, um, do you remember that Ark of the Covenant expedition book that we talked mm-hmm. about? Yep. Uh, they sent that to their dad and he was like, get that for me for Christmas. And they were so happy that <laughs> there was like oh. an option. So uh, yeah, gems like that is what I'm saying. We will find. Delightful. Uh, the other quick thing to mention, uh, this was our pre-roll ad, but uh, we're going to mention it again. It is Book Riot is celebrating its 10th birthday. Uh, and so there's some merch that you can buy at bookriot.com slash merch. But mostly I'm just excited that Book Riot has been around for 10 years. And uh, we were talking before, Alice, you were, you started in like a little after the site uh, launched, I believe. Yeah, a couple years after. Yes. And I started with the site as soon as it was born. I'm an original contributor 10 years later. So that is a decade of doing anything is a real uh, brain bender, I think. But you should get some kind of a button. <laughs> but I'm grateful for the, for the opportunity. We should. That sounds disingenuous, but it is genuine. We should talk to Book Riot leadership and be like, excuse me, <laughs> where is Kim's button? I'd like a medal. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Kim. Oh, okay. Okay. Just a button. Yeah, like you can make with like a little button maker. Yeah. All right. We'll we'll work on that. All right. So uh, our second sponsor, our first main sponsor for this week's episode is TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering reader recommendations personalized to your reading life, which makes a great gift for the holidays for the readers on your list. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for, and then you can sit back while a bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. You can uh, sign up for a plan to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for any budget. You give your bibliologist feedback, you can update your requests to stay in line with your reading goals and expanding horizons, and just have like a personal book concierge, which is super awesome. Uh, TBR is also available as a gift for the holidays, so select the plan you want to give and you can schedule the gift to be delivered any day that you want. Yeah, get your gifts fast because spots are limited this holiday season. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today or to start your holiday shopping. That's mytbr.co. And with that, we're going to share some uh, nonfiction news for this week. Uh, We've got a couple uh, different things to share. Alice, you've got the first one. Oh, yeah. So finalists were announced for the... (laughs) Like that you're so excited about. So jazzed. (laughs) Uh, Finalists were announced for the National Book Award. Uh, They are... Some of these we are very similar to a list we read last episode but i think there's at least one difference so try to spot the difference because you obviously have those memorized they are a little devil in america notes in praise of black performance by hanif abdurakib running out in search of water on the high plains by lucas basir tastes like war a memoir by grace m cho 
Covered with Night, a story of murder and indigenous justice in early America by Nicole Eustace, and All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley's Sack, a Black Family Keepsake by Tia Miles. So congratulations to everyone. Yes, that is very exciting. I like that there's a good mix of like popular nonfiction and university press uh, nonfiction in that list. I think that is nice, the variety there. Oh, so, yeah. uh Yes, they will announce the winners live on Wednesday, November 17th at a National Book Award ceremony that will be held online. So we'll keep you updated on the winner. Are the National Book Awards the ones that usually have it in like a giant ballroom and it's like a fancy thing that people post about on Instagram? I think so, yes. And I feel like when we talked about the long list a few episodes ago, like they still thought that they might do the uh, awards like in person and virtually. So I I think that's something that's changed, which makes sense. Oh, wait, is that literally the list I was referring to was the long list? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to like correct you. I'm like spot the difference and you're like, there are none. (laughs) There's none. Everyone's doing great. Okay. We're professionals and we're very good at this. (laughs) All right. So uh, the article that I am going to share is about uh, Henrietta Lacks. Uh, It's from the Associated Press, but posted on NPR. And the headline is, Henrietta Lacks' estate sued a company saying it used her stolen cells for research. So if you recall, uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks was a huge nonfiction book several years, many years ago now, I think. And it was about a woman, a black woman in Baltimore, I believe, who um, her ovarian cancer cells were taken without her permission and then became what is known as the HeLa line, which is a line of cells that have been used in a ton of modern medical advances. It was the first uh, successful use of human uh, cells to clone them and then use them for this research. But her family didn't know that that had happened. And so it took years and years and years for them to understand like what had happened and became this really fascinating book by Rebecca Sklute just about like the impact of the medical system on this family. And so this article talks about how their estate is suing a biotechnology company accusing it of selling cells that doctors at John Hopkins Hospital took from her Henrietta Lacks in 1951 without her knowledge or consent as part of a racially unjust medical system. And so they are suing Thermo Fisher Scientific and say lawyers say that they're planning to sue other companies as well for doing this and for benefiting from her herself without her family's knowledge or consent. So um, we'll link to the whole article, but I think it's a fascinating, like, continuation of this story that until The Immortal Life of Henry Lacks book came out, literally, really nobody knew about. It it seems like a good thing that this is happening without Mm -hmm. knowing, you know, like, who knows, like, context, etc. But it has always seemed extremely odd that they have not benefited from this because they have Mm -hmm. become so ubiquitous in scientific research so and just have helped so many companies make so much money um that her family being left out of that is uh, extremely unjust yes absolutely so we'll link to both of those articles so you can uh learn more uh, so with that, we will jump into new nonfiction, which is books that have come out recently or are coming out soon that we are excited or uh, want to talk and want to tell you about. So um, my first pick came out October 5th from Flatiron Books, and it is called I'm Possible, A Story of Survival, a Tuba, and the Small Miracle of a Big Dream by Richard Antoine White, which I love that title so much. 
there's just a lot in that subtitle as well. So Richard White and his mother, he grew up homeless. Um, his mother was an alcoholic, and despite having family in their area, they were homeless, and he often, like, would wake up in the morning not knowing where his mother was and having to, like, go around their neighborhood trying to find him. And he he tried to look after her, but really couldn't, and so eventually moves in with his grandparents. And after just a lot of stuff going on in his life, he eventually gains acceptance to the prestigious Baltimore School for the Arts and um, becomes a musician, and he becomes the first African-American man to earn a doctorate in music for tuba performance and is now um, part of the New Mexico, I think, symphony orchestra. Um, so he, like, has this amazing life story. Uh, he's now a professor, a mentor, and a motivational speaker, and he shares a story about dreaming big dreams, and that's what this memoir is about, basically. It's just how he was able to pursue his, discover his <laughs> talent for playing the tuba, and then, like, pursue that passion all the way to the highest performance possible. There's something in the book about like how unlikely it is for you to ever get a tuba position in a symphony. I think he talks about how it's easier to get an MBA than it is to get accepted into a symphony orchestra because there's just so few of them. And then within the orchestra, there's not, there's very few tubas also. I don't know. This book is just really interesting. The writing is good, but not like awesome. But his story is so compelling and he has such a like clear, um, clear way of sharing it and he has is very um honest about like the challenges he had with his mother but also how much he loved her and about what it was like to sort of go to his grandparents house who have all these like rules and routines and then how he first comes into music and what that brings to him and like how difficult it is going to this prestigious art school and just there's just so much and he has a really clear voice throughout even that I just, I find really compelling. So I just, I just think this is really interesting. He has a very, very fascinating story. And I, uh, yeah, I'm glad to talk about the book. So it's called I'm Possible, A Story of Survival, A Tuba, and the Small Miracle of a Big Dream by Richard Antoine White. Also, tubas are really funny sounding. <laughs> they are, yes. Like, boom, 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 boom. Anyway, <laughs> that's all my tuba knowledge. I watched an interview with him on Trevor Noah, and that was, like, the first whole part of the interview was him being like, tubas are interesting instruments and also great for comedy. <laughs> Just went on from there. So he's, it was a very, like, charming interview. I'll try, I'll try to find it and link to it. That's great. My first new release for this week is Notable Native People, 50 Indigenous Leaders, Dreamers, and Changemakers from Past and Present by Adrian Keene. This is one of those uh, books that I feel like has really been present in bookstores for the last, uh, I'm going to say five to 10 years, maybe five. But it's basically, you know, you get like this illustrated collection with a lot of biographies so that you can get these like snapshots of people. And then it can be sort of like a, a pathway to finding out more about them, which I very much enjoy. So in this one, it uh, profiles 50 notable American Indian, Alaska Native and Native Hawaiian people. And it's the breadth of it <laughs> in terms of like, you know, mm -hmm. it says past and present, uh, extremely accurate. Uh, they talk about NBA star uh, Kyrie Irving of Standing Rock, Lakota, Wilma Mankiller, the first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, Nicole Gonzalez, who uh, they have 
birth and death dates for everyone or in terms of current people just birth dates so nicole gonzalez was born in 1982 and is uh dine or navajo and is a, a nurse and an indigenous birth advocate and so she's profiled and everyone gets like a really beautiful illustration oh it also talks about edmonia lewis who you might have heard of um she was a uh an african-american and ojibwe uh sculptor and she brought like black and indigenous themes into like neoclassical sculpture so it was like very very interesting and she like broke a lot of boundaries barriers whatever um so there's just like a bunch of cool people portrayed and then also you get to look at nice pictures so i'm (laughs) again i'm a big fan uh so once more that is notable native people 50 indigenous leaders dreamers and change makers from past and present by adrian keen That sounds really interesting and like what a breadth of different people to profile. That's really cool. All right. So uh, my second pick is also a memoir because that's what I've been in the mood for lately. Uh, It's called Smile, the Story of a Face by Sarah Rule, which also came out October 5th uh, from Simon & Schuster. And so uh, this is a memoir about a woman who, after a high-risk pregnancy, suffers from Bell's palsy, which she loses the movement and ability to to do anything with the left side of her face. And the book is about her decade of living with Bell's palsy and what that means for her. So she is a playwright, a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. Um, She also, I think, was a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. And so the book opens with her um, getting ready to open a play on Broadway while also being pregnant with twins in a high-risk pregnancy. And so the first part of the book is about, like, her pregnancy and getting there and, like, having her children. And then shortly after they're born, she just, her face stops working. She, doctors tell her that like 90% of the patients see improvement and experience a full recovery, but she is in that 10%. And so for years and years later, she just has half of her face that is frozen. And so the book is about that, but also what it is like to be an artist in theater, a woman, a wife and a mother, and like how having her face not be able to express her inner feelings affects her in all of those different relationships. So like as an artist, how can she work that way? As a a mother, she wonders if like her children will understand that she loves them because she can't smile at them. Um, As a woman, like we're conditioned to smile at people and she can't. And so how does that affect her interaction and like place in the world? Um, And so it's just so intense the the writing about her pregnancy and her children it just is it's not it's it's visceral in some way like i sort of as i was reading i was like feeling it as as i read um and just she is so observant and like is is connecting her like bodily experience with so many things out in the world it's fascinating to learn about someone who's a playwright because I, I j- like just have no idea what it, that like even means as a career and a profession and how that you know, affects being a parent and all of those kinds of things. It's just really, really great. Uh, her writing is stellar, uh, like I said, really visceral and like you kind of feel how she is feeling in a really significant way. And I just I think it's really good. So Smile, the Story of a Face by Sarah Rule. Oh, that sounds really good. It's, it's real good. Um, yeah, I was only familiar with, uh, you know, I've like seen Rule's name associated with plays on Broadway, but, well, background info. Um, okay, 
so my other new pick for this week is On Animals by Susan Orlean. Uh, this is, for a sec, I was like, oh, wow, Susan Orlean has a new book. Kind of. So what it is, it is a collection of articles that she has written about animals, um, but uh, still delightful. Uh, so the way that this is sort of like positioned is that uh, when she was six, she wrote and illustrated a book called Herbert the Nearsighted Pigeon, which I just felt like I needed to relate to you all because that is amazing. And uh, since then, it's just been very into animals. And so this sort of the, the essays that are contained in this go from um, household pets to those that we eat or ones that could eat us. And there's just like, okay, so kind of like, you know, on the same lines as like Tiger King. She mm-hmm. writes an essay about a woman who had 23 pet tigers in New Jersey and one escaped. And um, I just don't understand people collecting tigers. And <laughs> there's like a, a donkey clinic <laughs> in Morocco. And there's, uh, oh, she's right. Oh, there's a really interesting one where she writes about how. Pre-World War II, Americans ate a lot of rabbit meat, and or at least way more than we do now, uh, which I believe is basically none, at least in the part of the Midwest that I live in. I'm not sure about elsewhere. But it went from like this staple into like post-World War II, everyone was like, you know what we got to do? We got to do beef and chicken. Um, and then people started owning more and more rabbits as pets. And now they are the third most popular pet in the country, which I believe because my last downstairs neighbors had a pet rabbit and (laughs) it chewed up all of their stuff. (laughs) But anyway, oh, also um, she talks about after the movie Free Willy, which some listeners of the pod might remember the sensation that that movie was. There was like this big movement to free Willy. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. after the movie, they were like, we have to release the orca into the wild. Um, they tried to do this in Iceland, and then it really did not want to be set free. Oh. <laughs> so, anyway, so just like a fun collection of essays by Susan Orlean, who researches things a lot, um, which is great. And also, of course, wrote the classic of nonfiction that I did not for a long time know was fiction. Um, the Orchid Thief. Oh, sorry, nonfiction was not thought was fiction, but is nonfiction. Anyway, that one is great. So this is On Animals by Susan Orlean. Now you've got me thinking about Free Willy and how much I would love to watch that movie again because I loved that movie as a child of the 1990s. I had older brothers, so I kind of just always associated that movie with like it being mocked and then it was parodied a lot on television. So uh, I don't even know if I've seen it. Oh my gosh. And I watched it many times. (laughs) Many times. So good. (laughs) I have one more new book I just want to throw in as a quick mention. Um, Mostly because, like, somehow it was not on my radar until just this week, even though it's been out for a week. And so I haven't, like, read it or anything. But it sounds awesome. And every person that I've seen mention it, that they've read it, really liked it. So um, the book is called Blackbirds in the Sky, the Story and Legacy of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre by Brandy Colbert. Uh, This is a YA nonfiction book that came out uh, last week. It's for ages 14 to 17, grades 9, 12, so high school age students. 
And it is about the uh, Tulsa Race Massacre, which is when a white mob marched across the train tracks in Tulsa, Oklahoma, into its predominantly black Greenwood district, a thriving affluent neighborhood known as America's Black Wall Street. They bought with them firearms, gasoline, and explosives, and they raised 35 square blocks, leaving hundreds dead. Uh, It is a devastating act of racial violence in U.S. history, but... Very few, myself included, know really much of anything about how it came to pass, what happened, and why don't we understand it. So this book gets at that. And like I said, like completely missed my radar, but I saw a bunch of people post about it in various social media channels this week, and they really highly recommended it. So I wanted to make sure to mention that. Uh, Blackbirds in the Sky, the story and legacy of the 1921 North Tulsa Race Massacre by Brandy Colbert. Thanks for covering that one. I feel like that... Well, because we were, this was the 100th anniversary, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we finally, like, I feel like it got more discussion this year. And obviously the whole, also the switch from riot to massacre, which is important. Yeah. So with that, we are going to jump into this week's theme, which is spooky nonfiction. It is October and we love to talk about creepy, spooky, unsettling nonfiction that you can read during the Halloween season. Are you a big Halloween person, Alice? I think I want to be, but I'm not. <laughs> what does that mean? I like, I follow a lot of like sort of Victorian gothic type accounts on Instagram. And I've always mm-hmm. like wanted to kind of like decorate like that and just like mm-hmm. live that kind of life. But I'm really lazy. And I also really like wearing like sweatpants and a cardigan. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's that whole the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak thing. <laughs> My sister is, uh, she loves decorating for different like holidays and stuff. So she just in the last few days put up all of our like fall and Halloween decor. So our house is pretty decked out on like the upper main level. But I, I too also am lazy. And so I have like one skull plant holder <laughs> out right now. <laughs> You're like, this is my nod to the season. And a, a blackbird that I bought at Target. Yes, but I do love to, to read spooky stuff. So my first pick for spooky nonfiction is called uh, The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained by Colin Dickey, who uh, previously wrote a book called Ghostland that got a lot of rave reviews. Um, so this book is a tour of the country's most persistent, quote, unexplained phenomenon or phenomena. So he is basically sort of his premise of this book is that like rational scientific explanations are available to us like more available than they have ever been but also belief in the unprovable and the irrational is also on the rise and he talks about that a lot in the context of stuff like atlantis and aliens and like the loch ness monster or whatever but also is connecting it pretty regularly to like all of these other kinds of like more, I think, insidious conspiracies, like stuff about vaccines and fluoride in your water and political stuff and chemtrails. And so he's trying to sort of see, are there ways in which sort of our beliefs in like unexplained monsters are connected to some of these other conspiracy theories that we are are starting to become more prevalent. So he looks at what fringe beliefs have in common sort of how they are ways to find meaning in a world that like no longer seems wonderful or mysterious to us. And then he goes on these like tour around the United States visiting sort of some of these sites of our wildest fringe beliefs. So <laughs> the first place he goes is Mount Shasta, where there's this rumor that there's this alien race of extraterrestrials called the Lemurians who live in the town and also in the mountain um, and just sort of all over the place to try and understand like 
why these theories happened, why they become popular, and then why we keep like bringing them back over and over again over time, despite like ample evidence that like this is not true. So um, what I like about this one is like it's a road trip book a little bit because he's going all over the place. It's a kind of a fun poke into like weird conspiracy theories and like kind of bizarre phenomena, but also like he's taking it He's, he's taking them seriously in the sense of, like, why do we want to believe them? Why do we believe them? And why have we become kind of in a – how have we become – found ourselves in a situation where, like, expertise and science are not believed in the same way or and that we let this stuff kind of flourish? And I think it's really interesting and I think it's really relevant while also being a kind of an entertaining way to get at some of those, like, more serious questions. So – That is The Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained by Colin Dickey. Oh, yeah, I definitely want to read that one. Great job, Kim. That was good. Thank you. Thank you. One of the ones that I saw that and just like decided to check out because it had a lot of reviews. So and I was like, oh, I've never heard of this book is The Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror by David J. Skull. Mm-hmm. And this is um, when it's saying The Monster Show, it's referring to movies, uh, films, uh, particularly in the 20th century. Um, the book originally came out in 93. And now there is a revised version that covers um, movies past then. But what Skull does is he's kind of talking about the link between horror and the great social crises of our time, which is the kind of stuff I love. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. horror alone, right? I mean, I'm not a, a huge horror fan. I get scared very easily. But when it's kind of like, this is a reflection of society, then uh, I get more interested. Uh, so one of the things he talks about is um, talking about Hollywood's classic horror movies, so like Dracula and Frankenstein and Wolfman and that kind of thing. And he says it, they, they, it plays out the traumas of two world wars and the Depression. Like that's when those movies were coming out, which I was like, oh. <laughs> then also mm-hmm. talking about these sort of like movies about invasion and mind control, which uh, there he says he connects with the Cold War and this preoccupation with demon children that was happening as like thalidomide and birth control and abortion were being like discussed more and were happening in the case of thalidomide. And then talking about this idea of like these really intense special effects, uh, particularly like bot with like body horror and this kind of thing happening when the plastic surgery industry was taking off and Mm. there was just like a lot that i was just like every single one i was like oh because i did not think of connecting those things before so um if you are interested in that kind of thing as i am then it is the monster show a cultural history of horror by david j skull that's super interesting because, like, we do that with fiction a lot, right? Like, when we look back at books like my favorite, Frankenstein, a lot of, like, the way that we look at Frankenstein now is about, like, what was making the people at that time really anxious? What was what were some of the, like, political and scientific and uh, sociological, like, things happening? And then how do those get put into Frankenstein, which is this fiction story, but also, like, is really connected to some actual things that were happening? So I, like, this one sounds interesting because it's doing that with, like, movies, which also kind of do the same thing, right? Like, they reflect back to us the things that we are we are worried about. So... Yeah. Yeah. Like, I just watched four Saw movies last weekend, and (laughs) (laughs) 
I've never seen the franchise before, but I was told they are not scary. They are just gross, which is true. And if I were going to like talk about the main thing I think Saw does, it's that everyone, it's kind of this preoccupation with uh, that people had about um, uh, like preppers, you know, like the mm, apocalypse, mm-hmm. etc. Like life is very scary. And so people are like, okay, I'm going to have control by knowing what I'm going to do if like this comes. I feel like Saw is kind of like how much when everything is like when it really comes down to it what are you willing to do and mm-hmm. a lot of like the stuff that just like we glide through life with is like stripped away and it's like okay you have to like make choices here that are very hard and like very like time sensitive cuz you are on a clock but mm-hmm. anyway yep lots of lots of thoughts here around <laughs> october <laughs> indeed yes so i also have thoughts to preface this next book a little bit because So one of the things we always try to do is we try to bring books from a variety of different perspectives. We want to represent different authors of color and all of that kind of stuff. And like spooky nonfiction is a genre that is, I would say, like mostly written by white people. And I spent a lot of time like poking around the library and sort of like thinking about that and trying to like, like, why is that, I guess? And so I ended up with this book that I think is maybe a stretch for spooky nonfiction, but I think it talks a little bit to some of that like thing I was trying to sort of understand as I was looking for books to read. So uh, anyway, that's a lot of preface to like introduce it. So uh, the book is called White Magic Essays by Elisa Watusha, uh, which came out earlier this year, I think I want to say in like April. And this is a collection of essays The author is a Native American author from the Cowlitz people of Washington State. And so this book kind of opens with her trying to... The first essay is this fascinating exploration of how she kind of grew up surrounded by, quote, cheap facsimiles of Native spiritual tools and occult trends, stuff like sage and rose quartz and tarot cards that are packaged together in a way, and about the way that white witchcraft sort of glosses over the ways in which they're taking Native spiritual traditions and co-opting them and whitewashing them into this whole, like, witchy occult vibe. Um, And so she considers herself a witch and so she's writing about that and how she sees those things connecting to her native identity and um her her experience growing up and all of these different things and it is it's super fascinating because i had not ever thought about that and so that kind of premise made me think a little bit just about like why you know what are the relationships that different marginalized communities have to ideas around the occult and all of that stuff. And it just it, it made me think a lot. And this whole book of essays really has made me think a lot. So I guess it is a very intense collection. There are a lot of trigger warnings, even in just like the first parts that I've read. She talks about being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She talks about alcoholism. Um, there's talk about sexual assault and drug use. And I believe there's some stuff about self-harm. So it's a it's an intense read for sure but she has such a cool and distinct voice and style and she is really playing with essays and the form of essays in the book which i think is really cool she 
also writes about how after experiencing a lot of abuse addiction and being diagnosed with PTSD, she gets drawn into the spirits and powers of her dispossessed and discarded ancestors. And so she uses that to try and like move herself forward. Um, She writes a lot about colonization and land and how those things connect to her personally, um, her experiences becoming a witch and how she uses that in her life, um, but also then like connects it back to like Twin Peaks and Oregon Trail and Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham and Fleetwood Mac and all this just lots of different things pulling together and she has a real sense of humor about a lot of this um I just I I just thought it was really it's really fascinating and I love the way that she's playing with essays and also like playing with the ideas we have about witches (laughs) in different like uh, iterations so uh, the book is White Magic Essays by Alyssa Watusha. Oh, I remember that coming out. Mm-hmm. Good job covering that. I feel like we've we've really kind of got a good breadth of <laughs> options here. I think so. Um, ending with mine, which is uh, Yurei Attack, the Japanese Ghost Survival Guide by Hiroko Yoda and Matt Alt. So I was... <laughs> I feel like <laughs> this one was one of those that you just like, you're not going to really come across normally, but I just like stumbled across it while doing research mm-hmm. for this. And it's so fun. And I think I'm going to buy it. Because it was just <laughs> like, okay, first of all, I looked up the pronunciation for Yure and I heard two different versions. One is Yure and one is Yure. And I was like, okay, I don't know where the accent goes. So please forgive me for any pronunciation in this because there was no consistency. But basically in uh, the Japanese ghost survival guide here, so yurei is Japanese word for ghost. And uh, so it can be a lot of different things in terms of like the the ghost definition. Uh, they are the souls of the dead that are still here. So kind of the way that we understand them in the West, uh, if you are listening from the West. And uh, just as in the West, some yurei haunt a specific place, others kind of roam around. But uh, yurei are driven by emotions that are so uncontrollably powerful that they take on a life of their own. So this is like rage, sadness, devotion, uh, revenge, or just this idea that like they are still alive. And it not only talks about different ghosts and how you can uh, fight them, or at least survive them, but also um, places and uh, just kind of some um, uh, some more like contextual information uh, that you will need should you need to ghost fight. So one of the ones that they talk about is uh, the Lady Rokujo from the Tale of Genji, which is, I think, the oldest novel that we know about. And it's written by a woman, which is exciting. Um, but the Lady Rokujo in the story, um, she ends up, uh, she dies and she, but she has this like, you know, the, the emotion that she feels is jealousy. Like her jealousy is so strong that um, she has this uh, wandering spirit that ends up murdering people. And this is like, like there's so many different stories like this. And again, it's like, so you hear about that, you hear about Otsuyu from the Tale of the Peony Lantern, um, Isora from Tales of Moonlight and Rain, Oiwa from the horror of Yotsuya. Like, there's just a lot. And the book itself looks like it's for kids because it's like very illustrated Mm -hmm. and all the pages have like are very colorful. 
but um, it is not for kids. <laughs> like, do not show it to children because a lot of the like you'll look at the illustrations, you'll be like, oh, fun, like sure, but they are very violent. Like, you just need to like examine them for an extra sec, and then it like registers, like, oh my gosh. So, uh, just as a warning, but uh, again, it's just very interesting. Uh, I've never seen it before. Super cool. And there's a whole, there's a, a series of three written by Hiroko Yoda and Matt Alt um, of how to survive very, there's like a monster survival book. But um, this is Yurei Attack, the Japanese Ghost Survival Guide by Hiroko Yoda and Matt Alt. That sounds super interesting. Um, I was looking it up online while you were talking. And yeah, you're totally right. The illustrations are so cool and they look so fun, but like they are really intense. Yeah. You would you would not want to give that to small children, I don't think, despite it being like bright colors and all of that. So yeah, good recommendation. Uh, all right. So with that, we will wrap up this week's episode as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading right now. I just picked up from the bookstore uh, Shelf Life Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller by Nadia Wasef, which I talked about uh, earlier this year as one of the books I was excited about in the second half of 2021. Uh, this is a memoir by a young woman who uh, is in Cairo, and she opens a bookstore with three of her friends. They have no like business experience or anything. They're opening the bookstore in the middle of a lot of turmoil in Cairo, and it is about their experience as booksellers and building their bookstore up into a, a really big and successful business like it is today. So I'm excited for that one to read this weekend. Oh, yeah, that one looks really good. I've been so I was out of true crime for a while. I was feeling like a little overwhelmed by the ethical implications. Uh, but yet here I am back again. <laughs> Just I've been watching so much Forensic Files. And I think it's like, a, like a stress mechanism or something. I don't I'm not gonna self-analyze. But anyway, so I picked up The Phantom Prince by Elizabeth Kendall. Elizabeth Kendall is the um, pseudonym of the woman who was in a long-term relationship with serial killer Ted Bundy. I have never read her book before, and I've heard of it. It's, I don't know if I would recommend it. It's not like, <laughs> it's not bad. I'm almost done with it. It's like, it's just a weird perspective because so much of the book is like, solely her vantage point of what was happening where she was like so you don't see the police investigation you just see like and then ted was arrested but he was like i'm innocent and i said great and you're just <laughs> like you know and then she's like another woman went missing and i was like ted why were you in colorado and he said don't worry about it like there there's a lot mm. of that and it's very strange because everything all of the actual horror seems to be like distantly in the background and it's like all about her relationship with Ted and then her struggles with alcoholism, which she addresses within the book, meaning like she um, starts going to recovery mm -hmm. and like doing recovery and going to meetings. But yeah, it's definitely, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I feel yet. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, that's The Phantom Prince by Elizabeth Kendall. Uh, in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a few minutes, we would love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then you can follow us there so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>